0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Perspective Philosophy. As you can see, I am joined here with Dan Norton. Dan is a PhD in philosophy, and he is a Randian. We are going to be debating Ayn Rand's ethical philosophy, specifically on the topic of egoism. I imagine we'll be going into the metaphysical weeds. So, hello, Dan, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Oh, sorry, I'm getting an echo. I need to turn off my audio from YouTube. Okay. Sorry, did you, did you just tell me to introduce myself? I did. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I was getting a double take in my ear. Uh, my name is Dan Norton. I have a PhD in philosophy. I am a big fan of Ayn Rand's philosophy, and I have a YouTube channel, uh, which I believe is linked in the description, um, which I use to promote Ayn Rand's ideas. So uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, come on and speak with you.
0: Yeah, no problem. I mean, uh, before this, I was actually saying that your, your, my experience with Rand is surface level. I would say, like, I've read *The Virtue of Selfishness*. I've uh, engaged with Atlas Shrugged a bit, but I wouldn't say that I'm a Randian by any means, or or or, or even an expert in Rand. So, would you like to explain to the audience the a, a nice overview of Ayn Rand's uh, ethical philosophy, or ethical political philosophy?
1: Okay, sure. So in a nutshell, she has a philosophy of reason, egoism, and capitalism, but I can expand on any part of that. So you asked about the ethical and political aspects. So ethically, she's in favor of egoism, but not a sort of brute Nietzschean sacrifice, other people to yourself sort of egoism. That's the sort of egoism which many people think of when the when they hear the word egoism but she believes that someone should pursue his own interest but not by sacrificing others to himself so one should respect the rights of other individuals other individuals also should be egoists everyone should be trying to pursue their own happiness but in a in a way that's harmonious with other people's pursuit of happiness and a, a way to pursue your own happiness and increase your chances of achieving it is to respect other people's rights. If I'm a jerk to other people, if I'm rude, if I rape, rob, and murder others, you know I'm gonna be at war with other people and that's going to uh, make my life worse than if I try to exist in a rights respecting sort of way, in a benevolent sort of way, in harmony with other people. So that's a little on her her ethical views. Politically, she favors capitalism, laissez faire capitalism. So, the state should be restricted to to protecting people from physical force uh so if someone you know steals your money uh goes around robbing, raping, murdering all those things are outlawed under our system. but what the government does is it steps in, stops those people, but it doesn't uh rob one person and give his money to another so as long as you're not initiating force against other people uh you should be left free and then you can all, all individual interactions should be voluntary instead of coercive and that's so that's essentially uh, her view of uh political uh relations and i could talk a lot more about that but i'll just stop there for now
0: yeah yeah that was a nice overview um yeah so i guess i just from that let's just jump straight into it i guess the questions that i have in relation to this philosophy is one like Where do we derive um, our own moral good from? Like, how do we understand ourselves and what is good for us? Um, And then two, it would be, I I know that she denounces what she calls moral cannibalism, where people do backbite and try to um, use each other as uh, essentially as a way to achieve their own ends or their own perceived ends, why would that necessarily be wrong? And what is wrong about it from a Randian position?
1: About using others to achieve your own ends?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, depending on what you mean by that, I don't think that there's a problem with using others. So if what you mean is, for instance, you go to a store and you use the people there selling you goods, let's say you go to a grocery store, you want to buy some food, well, am I using them? Well, in a way, I mean, I'm using them as a way to get uh, food. But if I interact with them properly, I give them something in exchange. So they're also using me. So I I give them money, they give me food. So it's a voluntary transaction to mutual benefits. And in a sense, we're both using each other, but not in a way that's uh, uh, bad for either of us. It's a win-win sort of transaction. So that's the kind of but what
0: about rape or, or murder? As you said, like what would be what would be wrong for Rand in those specific cases?
1: Rape and murder. So those are coercive ways of dealing with other individuals. You're you're doing something against their consents, and that's not a a way of interrelating with others that's conducive to your, to your own well-being long range. So she doesn't believe in a brute sort of animalistic moment to moment, momentary sort of existence. She thinks it's best for your own happiness and well-being to consider the long-run consequences of your actions. And if you go around raping and murdering people, you're putting yourself at war with others. And that's, going, that's not good for your long-run happiness and well-being. That likely, you know, if I go around murdering, someone's going to want to stop me. Put an end into it. Maybe throw me in jail. Maybe execute me. Give me the death penalty. And that's certainly not good for my well-being. Um, if if I'm a rapist, so um, you know, who's going to for- want to be my my uh, girlfriend if she knows she, I'm going to I'm going to rape people? So Go ahead.
0: I was going to say. So it's is it purely for like sort of um, self interested motives in the first? So you you wouldn't do it because ultimately some other other conclusion, which is worse for you will occur like some sort of consequence will occur for you is that the main thrust of the argument because yeah uh, i mean that, that 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 sort of begs the question why let's say a political ruler would be um or, or someone who had a considerable amount of power would respect someone who could not let's say enact some sort of vengeance or you know sort of uh, bring me to justice if there was no like let's say like even it's cross-cultural i'm murdering and raping in a way that is let's say I'm, we meet an alien species and you know we're on a we're on a planet that's uninhabited except for me and this other person nobody else knows where they're why should i not rape and, or murder them
1: okay so you mentioned a, a couple sorts of examples, so the alien example and then the the dictator sort of example. Mm-hmm. So, to go one at a time, I guess starting with the dictator. So, I think if you're a dictator, you your your hold on power is plausibly precarious. So you, you might uh, you're in constant danger of assassination, and you you just look at history, you you can see that's someone who assumes power in a dictatorial sort of way is often overthrow in some kind of coup. Maybe they're executed a few years after they get into power. Um, even if they're not uh, overthrown, there's this constant threat of being overthrown. So I don't, I don't think it's very conducive to a, a good internal mental state to know you're constantly under threat because you're treating other people like garbage or worse. Uh, they have an incentive to... To stop that and to attack you, to somehow put an end to it, and then aside from whether you're um, uh, caught, I think you just—it's plausible that someone will feel rotten about himself. I don't think you can respect yourself if you treat others as as garbage. Well,
0: why would um, you say that? Is there a, is there a reason for that? Is there is a metaphysical reason, or are you just relying upon, let's say, like ordinary what you take to be like ordinary mental states like something that is uh you think just sort of fundamentally human
1: just one second before they answer that i'm getting little notification things that produce a sound every few seconds sometimes are you hearing that no okay good i'll just try to ignore it on my end but i'm glad that at least you're not hearing okay
0: so sorry (laughs) Uh, okay um so yeah so like i'm just wondering is, is this like some sort of moral sense where so, for example, if someone hasn't got a conscience in relation to what they're doing, let's say they see, like with the alien example, they see the person they're engaging with is subhuman, you know, um, why should they, or they you know, let's say that they are, um, let's say they are, there is a racial difference, like a special, like a, like a kind of, uh, there's a difference in sort of capacities, capabilities that are necessarily the case, like between humans and animals, for example, um, or between humans and disabled people like, as a class, like, are mentally disabled. Um, let's say that this group of individuals in this society are held in contempt. Uh, they're not held with any sort of um, public uh, adoration or compassion. Um, and people simply um, abuse them for their own amusement. Like, like, when people used to go and, you know, see the mad get whipped, you know, they'd go, like, uh, into asylums, and they'd go and, wit- they'd go and watch the mad. Like, why would, um, like, what, what would Ron say was wrong about that? Or would she say there was anything wrong about that?
1: I think so. I think she would say there's something sick and twisted about taking pleasure and another being suffering. It's one thing to, to... Derive some kind of advantage from it, like eating meats. I know you're you talk a lot about vegetarianism, or have done that.
0: Veganism, I yeah. or
1: veganism, yeah. So it's one thing to kill an animal for the food of it. Uh, you derive some sort of benefits, uh, but if it's just for the sake of watching it suffer, you're not even trying to benefit from it. I think there's there's something corrupt about that, um, and I, I think it. It's probably a sign of an unhealthy psychological
0: state. But what's um, unhealthy about it? Like because health it being a standard, like you're gonna have to make an argument that there is that 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 there is some sort of either um like that as in like a human psychology is necessarily going to be uh in detriment from this sort of um dispositional relation to others, or that it is. In other way in other words in you know conducive of something which is necessarily detrimental to the individual, where like so for example, the mental state itself is a form of suffering um so what would what what would you say like in that respect, like what is this psychological harm? And don't get me wrong, I think it's completely horrible, I wouldn't advocate for it, I would certainly advocate against it so i mean it it, it it's just wondering what Rand would say
1: yeah, uh. Well, first of all, there there might be people who maybe you could call them psychopaths who there's there's no way to fix it. I'm not sure about that, but
0: I don't think you, know, you if need we, to go into the psychopath thing like um like this. Like, for example, the most of the Nazis in World War Two, like a lot of them did some nasty stuff. There's people in Ukraine that'll be doing some nasty stuff right now. Uh, these won't be like psychologically uh, i think too distinguished from the ordinary individual in society i think that yeah. the, the capacities for human uh, sadism is like in in everyone everyone's capable of being sadistic
1: right so set aside the psychopath sort of case just talk about the a normal human yeah this psychology. Is a normal
0: yeah like like yeah so like with psychopaths it kind of implies there's something broken in the first place doesn't it like it's as if there's something abnormal going on this is, this person's not functioning correctly what about you? Just your ordinary individual, like the person that just they, they do feel for people, but they don't feel for these people, uh, or at least they what they feel about these people. They gain gratification rather than uh, than disgust at at certain acts done against them.
1: Right. So, what's wrong with that? Uh, I'm not sure what to say of like initially, but I, I would wonder, know why? Why is it that? They are taking pleasure in another being's suffering. I mean, if if you're on the premise of trying to pursue happiness and your own well-being and harmony with other people, like how does it how does it benefit you in any way that some other being is suffering?
0: Pleasure, not the benefit itself.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, you can get pleasure from doing drugs or having alcohol, but if there's some kind of uh, long run cost to that, then I think that should be factored in. So I guess, I so, uh-huh. I mean, am I going to be, am I going to want to be friends with somebody who takes pleasure in needless suffering of other human beings or animals? I don't think so. I'm going to want to shun that person. I'm going to try to ostracize that person from my life Uh, so that's i guess that's one problem i mean i Uh, I guess
0: but i mean what happens when it's a community of people and you know they they do have friends and you know the uh, i think that it's one of those things where i guess it comes down to why do we take pleasure in anything and what is the correct thing to take pleasure in is the sort of heart of the question that i'm kind of trying to metaphysically uh sort of push us towards like what is a correct desire uh, or an or, or correct pleasure, and what is an incorrect one, and why, from a Randian perspective?
1: Yeah, I think a a correct pleasure would be one that integrates with your life as a whole, with your long run well being, and I, and I think if if you're talking about the sort of person that does take pleasure in something like cruelty to animals, I don't think that integrates with their their long-run well-being and happiness but why uh well i mean there's there's the so i gave this sort of consideration uh, a minute ago about i'm not going to want to interact with that sort of person so i'm going to shun them isolate them so you might think they're going to be isolated but then you brought you brought up the case of well what if there's a whole community of people like this
0: community there's communities of hunters and stuff and there's communities of like um there's there's communities of uh people who enjoy uh blood spots for, you know what I mean like there's there, there, communities everywhere so it's like one of those things it's like yeah and, and you know you you that's not even considering like what if this person is less social there might be them I mean they're probably going to be antisocial social anyway so like when we're talking about how they engage with people in the first place they might want to be friends with someone who's not uh, disagreeable, who's not willing to um, essentially engage in violence, you know, like neo-Nazi gangs and stuff like that. That might be, like, that might be their like community.
1: Yeah. Um. Just a second. I'm going to try to turn off my Discord because these notifications I'm getting every few seconds are really distracting. So if no I shut down Discord, that's not going to end this call because we're on Zoom, I believe so i hope it doesn't but, anyway <laughs> all right let let me just try that hold on a second okay i uh, still hear me we're still here
0: yeah it's good okay so yeah okay. so like i'm just wondering what the metaphors so like when we're talking about like standards and like something being harmonious with your life in the first place we'll have to understand like well what is so what is a good pleasure what is a bad pleasure i mean you could have a harmonious life full of like in in, in theory it could be a, a an internally consistent um, life in which an individual takes pleasure from sadistic acts. Those sadistic acts are, they have friends, they have family, there's people like this that exist. Um, like, they do what we would consider antisocial actions, but only so far as it brings them um, uh, advantage. Even social advantage, like let's say, like the they uh, they intimidate others, like they actively engage in like uh, forms of intimidation to gain uh, social and political advantage. Um, and as such, they've managed to position themselves as a as a community figurehead. Like these these kind of situations seem to be um, antithetical to the notion that simply being violent is going to lead you to. Uh, an unhappy life if happiness is just pleasure. So I'm just wondering what, like, is there like how do we if if happiness is just pleasure, right? If it's just your your experiences of of positive and negative stimuli, how do we differentiate what is a good one and a bad one if it if that itself is the standard?
1: Well, if you I mean if you think uh, one is long range, going to be more sustainable. Uh, then that would be the one to go for, so if you think a certain policy uh, so I think it 's different with with animals and humans they I think it's less sustainable in the long run to uh, put yourself at war with other human beings because they can fight back as opposed to animals you know dogs, chickens, you could just you could spend your life torturing animals and get together with some friends and uh, spend your whole life uh, in your little community of uh, friends who likes to torture animals. I, I guess that that could be sustainable. I don't think it's sustainable when you're putting yourself at war, or at least it's less likely to be sustainable in the long run to put yourself at war with other people.
0: It doesn't have to be a war, remember? like You get cult leaders, for example, uh, where they worship. You get, um, I mean, Machiavelli's prince, he sees uh, fear as a as a tool to maintain political uh prowess so like why is it that for example you would say that this is less sustainable anyway when someone like Machiavelli might respond with actually this is how you make a sustainable environment for your own uh for your own will to flourish for your own um to to enact your own desires well I I don't know I mean he
1: I, I don't know uh, that he would be correct in asserting that his his mode of being is is sustainable. Uh, I mean, we, we can look at history, for examples of um, people who try to pursue power. And as I've already mentioned, uh, they're they're often overthrown by the next guy who wants power. even And even if they're not overthrown, they're under constant threat of being overthrown. So they they live with that fear because they know they're acting in a way that's you could other people. It.
0: You could, for example, you could make it a little bit, um, you could make it a little bit more sustainable. And this is what Machiavelli does, doesn't he? he proposes a constitution, a form of constitutional government, but with the head is a as a monarch, and so it's the, the you, you still have um, an inordinate amount of power in in certain individuals, but you also have a more diverse power structure which limits perhaps the monarch's power. But creates a, a more sustainable environment. The same thing can be said with um, with uh, let's take um, uh, I think uh, the the Roman the Roman Senate. Obviously, the Roman Senate is notoriously uh, bloodthirsty, and they'll kill you. But if you work with the Senate, they could actually be your greatest allies. So, like Marcus Aurelius, for example, he seemed to live a pretty decent life. Um, he seemed to have a lot of power. Um, I mean, someone like Emperor Caligula, maybe you would be right about that. You know, he went mad from the threats of people wanting to kill them and stuff like that. And, um, but there seems to be plenty of Roman emperors who ruled correctly or ruled in such a way as it to not have to worry so much of assassination, but have an inordinate amount of power and, 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 be able to fulfill their, uh, their whims. I'm just wondering, and even that doesn't even take into consideration things like secrecy, um, things like, um, things like class-based structures. You know, the, 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 a slave class, for example, where you have a community, uh, a, a conscious community separation where we associate only with a collective, with one part of the collective and not the other. So I'm just wondering why, like, like, so for example, in Nazi Germany, when, like, if you're part of a system where people are murdering the mentally disabled, let's say you're someone who really enjoys that, how is this going to come back on you? Or like There's slave owners.
1: Yeah. So you're murdering people who are mentally disabled. I mean...
0: Because I think it's wrong necessarily. I think inherently wrong. I think that what you're doing is wrong. And I will argue that from a place of of metaphysics, like uh, meta-ethics. But it, it seems to me that you've got to make the, the, the point of going, this will lead you to have a bad life. And I'm trying to posit a scenario in which... Actually, it it it, nest, it it might not actually come back to bite you on the ass. You might get away with your horrific crimes, like Jimmy Savile, for example. No one came out when he was alive. Right, his his reputation's destroyed, but he's dead.
1: Okay, I, I don't know who that is. I'm not familiar with that. Or
0: a horrible pedophile uh, who was a public figure in the in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just putting my
1: myself in this sort of position. And you use this phrase, this fr- you said, how would it come back to bite you? But in my case, I don't think it even would have to come back. I mean, it's already there from the, from the moments I treat someone like that. I think I would feel guilty.
0: I you, think you're a, you sound like a, a, a well-brought-up person, right? <laughs> right? You can't use that as a just, like, well, you can't appeal to your own psychological state like i'm yeah. I, like it, like cuz rand it's a fundamental nature isn't it like she appeals to life um in the virtue of selfishness so i'm just wondering like what about our vital interests would alienate us from doing violence to one another or like prevent or or motivate us to not perform violent acts against one another if we take the individual if we take the self to be purely particularized which is what i think she does she takes it to be very individual to the person the good is to the good of specific members of society and not a collective
1: yeah so i was thinking that maybe if i use myself i could then sort of unravel what the reasoning is and then extrapolate from that and apply it to other individuals so i think in my own case I would feel guilty if I I treated others in this cruel sort of way. So then one could ask, well, why, why feel guilty? And then if I can substantiate that with reasons, then perhaps those reasons would apply equally to others. Um,
0: Okay. So why feel guilty then? If you think, if you think that that guilt is the sort of uh, is a rational position, then you're saying like, like if you are rational, you will feel guilty. So that, Okay, so give us your reasons for why someone should feel guilty.
1: Yeah, so I think that's, that's the more challenging part. So the, the easy part is to say, I
0: would feel guilty. i just projecting
1: how I think I would feel in that scenario. Yeah, I think I would feel very guilty, maybe, maybe to the point where I would want to just turn myself into the police or kill myself if I killed somebody else, because otherwise it would just haunt me for the rest of my life so why would it be so troubling to me
0: give credit to your to your parents who seem to have raised you well at least <laughs> or, or, or or maybe, maybe partly to
1: to that maybe partly to myself for yeah. the thinking that i've i've chosen to do about these sorts of issues which no one forced me to do you know um just because you're raised by certain parents doesn't mean you're going to de- be determined to have certain ideas you could have conflicting um, ideas they could raise you religiously and
0: Apparently, Ted Bundy's parents were actually fairly decent. So, you know, you've you've raised you 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 come through your parents. I think was the best way I, I had it described. You you they don't they don't make you children move through you. Uh, and I think like uh, it's an environmental. It's like they, they yeah. I think that you're right there. But it's just more of the fact like obviously I think Aristotle would have called this like a crates, wouldn't he? It's like you've essentially internalized good uh, values like virtues. Um, and so they've limited in a way which is beneficial to you, your um, your uh, uh, habits and your your desires. And I think that's the kind of argument you're trying to make. I guess the issue is is like obviously Aristotle appeals to an essential nature where he says like, look, this is why humans should behave like this. Whereas I don't think Rand does that. She appeals to the ego and the ego itself. It has an essential nature. It's like there is a life here, but she doesn't really from what I'm aware, she doesn't expand upon what our nature is and why we should care about others, other than simply caring about our own satisfaction and our own pleasure over time, even. Yeah, well, I mean, she does
1: as I I think you know, she she thinks we should care about others, certain others, not all others. I mean, if somebody's a, a dictator, you might want to destroy that person but again, that's also because it, it's in your own interest to do so. Likewise, you would say it's in your interest to respect other people's rights. So maybe it, uh, par- partly this com- there's a question, I mean, as an individual, you face a choice of how you're going to relate to other individuals If if you want to live in society and reap the Benefits of society. I think there's a lot of benefits to be reaped in a proper society. Like if you're if you're a Jew in a Nazi society, then your your interest might consist of getting out of society. You might be better off living alone, isolated. But if you're in a a rights respecting, free society, uh, like more like the United States, I would say, then it is in your interest to be in society. Um, So I, I think as an individual you face the question of how should I relate to other individuals? Should I relate to them as a trader trading value for value? Like the grocery store example I gave before you, you give them money, they give you food. It's a win-win sort of relation. Or do you want to have a exploiter and exploited sort of relationship? Uh, A war of all against all as Thomas Hobbes put it. Well, maybe that sort of life would be nasty, brutish, and short. I think it would. Uh, so, uh, I,
0: I think it, himself argues for what I think you'd probably consider tyranny.
1: Uh, maybe so. Uh, if you have an all-powerful state, Leviathan, um, and the sovereign
0: so I, is the soul, the rational principle from which the movement of the Leviathan is derived uh yeah like what i doubt is, that is what he sees as the so like if i became the sovereign like why can't i like i i, I you know I'm, there is a point in which i think you would say it would be irrational for the sovereign so it would be like cutting off your own finger but at the at the same time like if i see even the good of myself and the body of the people as in cutting off what i see as a a least a less useful part of it let's say aristotle when he's when he argues that uh children who are severely disabled should be killed um you know they're a drain on society would you say like i'm I'm assuming you would think that was wrong the benefit the, the large amount of society let's say agrees with aristotle in this situation you are the sovereign you and you want to kill them because it makes your state stronger, makes you stronger, and it provides you political stability. Are you wrong? So I, I,
1: I don't I don't think it is true that you will be stronger if you kill people who are disabled. If if that's the example, I'm not familiar with that example. I mean, severely, I'm
0: like, I think I think it's severely disabled. I think that it, like it's, so. For example, it's someone. And I don't, I agree in some respects that there is a point in which uh, you could absorb it, but I think that it's going to cost you resources. You're going to need people to care for them. You're also going to need, um, uh, I mean, I think there's advantages too, which is compassion. Um, But let's say you have limited resources at this point in time. Why not kill them?
1: Well, there are uh, what you might call lifeboat cases Ayn Rand has an article called The Ethics of Emergencies where she she might be discussing the sort of case you have in mind. So if you're on a lifeboat and uh, it, it's uh, it can only hold one person, but there are two people on it, then in a sense, there's limited resources. There's limited space for uh, survival. So in that sort of scenario, you would be justified in trying to throw the other person overboard in order to save yourself but that's we don't live in lifeboats we don't live in that sort of uh zero-sum world where one person can only gain at the expense of someone else normally if we're not in an emergency sort of situation we can survive in harmony with other people and we don't need to kill exploit other people it
0: seems that this harmony is accidental that there's nothing built into it like as in it, it, it so happens that my interests may harmonize with you and they may harmonize with others and they may even do so uh, the majority of the time. But if that harmony, if we fall into disharmony, then I am justified in any action against you, it seems.
1: Well, I, I think maybe we need to fill in the details here more. So as a general rule, I think it's not in your interest to coerce to use physical force against other people. It's in your interest to respect others' rights, let them act as they choose to act, engage with them voluntarily. What about other exceptions to that? Like the lifeboat case that I gave, but I think those are exceptions. So I just think in general, we should respect others' rights. That's the most harmonious way to interact with other human beings. What do
0: you even mean by rights as well? So, this is like, I, I'm going to start trying to push back on your metaphysics. So, what do you mean by rights? Well, okay. What is right?
1: So, so, in Rand's view, uh, the rights are, uh, it's our rights to be free from physical force. I so mean, the, the more fundamental concept here is force or coercion, which so the initiation of force is another phrase that she sometimes uses. That's what she's against starting the use of force. You can, it's okay to use force in self-defense. That would be a retaliatory, retaliatory well, right? use of force, but starting the use of force against other people is what, uh, Oh, sorry. I just uh, changed my, uh, can you still hear me?
0: I can hear you. Yeah.
1: Okay. Sorry. I got a message saying my headphone had changed so she, what she opposes is initiating force. She's not against using force and retaliation or self-defense. And if you do initiate force, that's when she thinks you're violating someone's rights. So if I try to rob you, take your stuff without your consent. I mean, that's
0: pornological. It seems like you have a right to not be coerced and that you are being coerced, that being, co- being coerced breaches your rights. Do you know what I mean? Like, why? Why is this a right? Why? Sh- what? What fundamentally makes this a right? And what's different? Like, for example, if I have a desire not to be, right? We haven't even got to the point of the people that do desire to be physically coerced. I mean, like, that's not even.
1: Well, if if they desire, then are they really being coerced? Is it? If this is what they want, uh, no, they could be wrong really about what they as... want.
0: So they believe they could believe that they are right. In that they understand themselves correctly when they may misunderstand themselves, And they, they hurt me. Uh, but and as masochistically as they think is good for them, but they might actually be wrong about that. So like, you know, they might be wrong against their own desires, even their own preferences. Uh, and and then also, I'm really what I'm really considering is just what makes this a right and not just a desire. Anyway, well, yeah. what is what is fundamental about this that just makes it like a like way would go so far as to say if this is the rights of all citizens. This is universal as well. This is in every single individual. Yeah. So
1: she she bases her view of rights on the nature of man. So in her view, the nature of human beings is such that they survive by reason. Reason is the basic means of survival. So by thinking, we're able to produce all the amazing technology that we have today. And but reason cannot function under force. So a gun is not our arguments. Well, Galileo I mean, going before the Catholic Church is a classic can. example of this. You know, they, they they are
0: false, though, can't it? Because like you could it depends on sorry to interrupt, but it depends on whether you're the one holding the gun, right? Like so if, if you had a gun to someone else, your reasoning might be working fine, their reasoning might not. Um, so like like the the point, I guess of what I'm trying to aim at when you say nature, the the nature of man, is that nature particular to each and every individual man? Or is it common and universal, like a species that Aristotle would argue? I guess there's something specifically that is inherent that we share. Do you know what I mean? Or is this individualized? Like, am I just like talking about individual uh, psychologies well,
1: I, I think maybe it's both. I mean, everyone in the species, all individuals of the species, man or human being or homo sapien, has a rational capacity. I mean, there might be very rare exceptions on the margin, psychopaths who can't be rational. But setting that aside, uh, all members of the species human being have a rational capacity, and that capacity cannot function under force. Well, what, is, under co- what,
0: is this, what is this nature that, that we that like, do I partake in this nature? Is this nature, do do I understand what my nature is against myself or do I understand it against some sort of universal? So like, for example, if I was understanding what was right and wrong, is it right and wrong against like my, my personal nature, or is it right and wrong against human nature? Like simplicity. Well,
1: I mean, I think certainly the former, but the former or the latter is exemplified in the former i mean you are you are a human i am a human you know billions of other people are humans and we all have a similar nature we're not identical in every respect but we have we're similar in that we all have a rational capacity and we're also similar in that force negates and paralyzes that rational capacity how so okay so um if I, there's two parts of that and negates and paralyzes, Ayn Rand uses that phrase or a very similar phrase. So how does force negate the minds? Well, if if I use my minds to be productive, I I go to work and I I uh I, I'm a computer programmer, let's say, and I spend my my days writing code. And then um, I do all this mental work and I'm able to, in exchange for that, draw a paycheck. And so I get my paycheck, say I get a few thousand dollars every week for doing this. And then uh, you come along and you just, you rob my bank account or you hack my bank account and take all the money that I earned. Well, you've negated my mind in the sense that all that mental work I put in to producing that wealth is now wor- worthless to me. So my mind has become useless to me. And my mind is my, my tool of survival. Humans survive by their minds, by their reason, according to Rand. But you make that survival tool impotence. Um, so animals, they survive by brute force as opposed to their rational capacities. But humans whose means of survival is their their rational minds that's that survival kind of, tools made impotence when but it, you they don't
0: have to be antithetical. Violate rights. You could have someone so someone who comes and clears your bank account, they've managed to rational They create quite a complex criminal um like they managed to defraud you in a quite a complex way. Like I couldn't hack someone's bank account, for example. Um so like they've clearly used their rational capacities to do that to you. Um and engaged in, let's say, British violence in some respects. Um so I'm just wondering like If their reason is being, uh, if their reason is being, is working functionally and correctly, uh, but yours is not in this in this situation by that standard, uh, why is it wrong?
1: So I I would challenge the idea that their reason is working correctly. I mean, in a sense, you could say they correctly figured out how to hack into my bank account, Mm -hmm. but if are they correctly considering what's in their own long-term rational self-interest? I
0: Possibly. don't think
1: they're they're correct about that. Why? Um, well, they they're for. It goes back to this question: of How do you relate to other people? Is it in your interest to relate to other people as traders, trading value for value, or is it in in your interest to? Relate to other people as a parasite on a host. If you try, as this uh, hacker does, to uh, relate to others as a parasite, where you're just you know sucking, sucking the lifeblood out of them without giving them anything in return, well, they have an incentive to uh, stop that, to put an end to it, and come attack you, find you out, throw you in jail. So this doesn't... person is now under threat of all that happening.
0: Yeah, but then they might be completely successful. They might of they, they for example the might like there's people who are incredibly successful criminals their entire lives and they live in a way which is pleasurable, they're not no real threat from others because they're so powerful. I'm just wondering like like the, like so for example like this this argument works for someone who is scared of pushback. Let's say they're scared of prison. Let's say the person that's involved is not scared of prison. They actually don't mind prisons. Prison's not that bad for them. The risk isn't that great. Uh, the reward is a life of luxury. Um, and they think that the likelihood of them getting caught is negligible. And let's say it is negligible because of the kind of crime that they are committing. Um, they do it in such a way as to transverse um legal boundaries in terms of like countries and stuff. Um, and so it's a it's a point of international law which is complex. They would have to be hunted by Interpol, and let's say the amount that they've taken is small amounts from various individuals that are being funneled into a single account. So, like they, they, they are own like each case seems isolated, and each case is enriching them to the point in which, when collectively, they will become millionaires or something. Um, There's not going to be as much like if they were stealing a million at a time or something. There's, there would be a lot more, of a bigger manhunt. But in this case, like they the know that the resources of each individual police department from the local vicinity are not going to consider this a major incident. So they've they've they've, they've created this clever scheme. Um, and even if they do get found out, they're in a place which is non that has no extradition treaty to the countries that they're stealing from. So I'm just wondering, like, what places this individual in a situation where they shouldn't? Where it would be irrational for them to do this.
1: Well, it it, it sounds like you can dispute this, uh, and we can get into it. But I, I I think the person is building a house of cards. So they're doing all these minor crimes, I guess you're you're describing it as, but these these add up, and you know, a given incident, if it's the first incident, say. Very small, steal a few dollars. Maybe the police think it's not worth looking into. Um, but the more they do it, uh, the bigger a problem it seems to be, and the greater incentive, the more of an incentive there is for the police to track this person down. So the more they they try to get, uh, the more likely it is they're going to be caught. Um, so so that's one thing. Uh,
0: I feel like this is relying, what we are relying upon here is some sort of the, the only thing stopping the criminal is the fear of punishment.
1: Well, that was the one thing. So I just said, yeah. for one thing, there are more. But the other thing, which I think is going more to the point you're just raising, is the internal psychological states. So th- this is where I think someone suffers on the inside, even if they're not caught. So you can't avoid being caught by yourself. <laughs> knowing that you're acting in this way now of course you know you can ask you the next question well why should you feel bad and then maybe i'll I'll bring up the point again about my own case well i would feel bad and then you can ask why and i can try to unravel that and give reasons as to why
0: do you think that an an individual will be irrational for not feeling guilt and remorse uh well i think i don't know if
1: a someone can be rat maybe if they're like a psychopath they could do this without feeling guilt but i think if they are have a normal psychology and uh i, I think a rational person would feel guilt so so why i guess that's that's yeah um let me let me see if i can unpack it so why would i feel guilty um i've i guess i've I've betrayed my own standards for how, sh- how I should relate to other people, so I think it's it's best for me when I'm considering my long run interest, what's most conducive to my happiness and well being. It's that I relate to other people as a trader, uh, and I violated that principle. So I'm, I've now put myself in the position of a parasite. Uh, can I really respect myself? This is, this is another por, por point, which I haven't brought up before, but I think is relevant. If you put yourself in the position of a parasite, you don't have the pride and self-esteem well, what that comes from producing a value. You, you don't have the knowledge that, hey, I, I can support myself. I can. I can survive on my own as an independent, autonomous human being. I'm dependent on others.
0: Yeah, but thing, yeah, but you're always going to be dependent on others in some respects, right? But like, like look at it like Well, this. Like, in,
1: in a relevant respect, I don't I don't think you are dependent look, look, if you're productive look, rather than a parasite.
0: Look at it like this. One, what would be wrong with being a parasite, right? Like you're assuming that the individual has a negative connotation with the notion of parasitic, uh, a parasitic relationship that very well might not. And then two, why would um, they see themselves as a parasite anyway? They might see themselves as like a commander or some sort of, um, like, mastermind. They might see themselves as, like, typically people like psychopaths often refer to themselves as predatory. Like, it's not that they are parasitic, it's that you are vulnerable and weak. Do you know what I mean? So, like, you're assuming that their psychology is already going to be, I am doing the wrong thing, when their psychology might be, I am being the best. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, in a way which demonstrates their greater rational capacity, in what they see as basically a chess game with the rest of humanity.
1: Yeah. Uh, I suppose if you are, maybe if you're living in an anarchic sort of society, a war of all against all, then you, perhaps in that sort of scenario, you could derive some kind of self-esteem by being the greatest conqueror. But if you're not in that sort of society, if you're in a, a society more like the United States or the UK, um, then I think your self-esteem would more plausibly depend on being able to be a producer yourself, support yourself, not live on the dole or as a parasite Uh, Well, no,
0: they're not living on the door. So look at it like this, right? Like, let's say they take this money and let's say they steal it from people and then they use that and they invest it in the stock market and make more money than all of the other people would have combined because they used it in a way which is more intellectual. They're actually a smart individual. Let's say they've got like an IQ of like, I don't know, 200 or some shit. They're ridiculously intelligent. They, 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 They do everything financially correct with the money they get and they produce greater value from that. But they use other people's money to do it. And so, and they even pay them back afterwards. Let's say, so they go back and they're like, "All right, I don't owe you anything. Now I took it for a time. I used you then." He has your money back. I don't even care.
1: Well, I, I think that would be better than not giving them money back. <laughs> but um, I, I, I still think it would be. It would be better if they didn't take it without their consent to begin with.
0: I just, I just don't see what's necessarily wrong. I get. I think there's a lot of like a lot being done with the hypothetical that there is something like psychologically being induced when you do negative actions, which I actually agree with. I think I'll I'll have a video on pits disorder, uh, like perpetration induced traumatic stress that individuals seem to get from just killing animals. Right. So when people see that they're doing wrong, they see that they're killing animals. They typically end up with uh, a psychological condition revolving around that. Right. When they're like they're, they're murdering things all day long. So perpetration seems to have a detrimental effect now i think that it has a detrimental effect because of how our psyches are formed and i'm just wondering if you're going to make an argument in relation to the nature of the human psyche which would show that it is irrational not to have these experiences so for example some people don't get pitt's disorder some people do not get have negative experiences when they do wrongdoing. like there's a lot of people like that and what is it and when they do and 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 what is necessarily wrong about this variant psyche, and why. <clears throat> maybe, maybe
1: this co- co- connects to the issue of acting on principles, which may have been in the background implicitly in earlier parts of this discussion, but maybe it's worth addressing explicitly. Um, so I think people who, who act in the sort of way, which, which I think you're asking about, um, as parasites, uh, murdering, raping, whatever, robbing, they're, I question whether they're acting on principle as opposed to on whim. So I, I think in in this also connects to the issue of being long range. So I think acting on principles is a way of being long range whereas acting on whim is not uh so if you're if you're trying to decide like what is the sort of way what is the policy by which i should conduct my relations with other people how should i relate to others as a traitor or as a parasite um, i think that's the the level
0: at- even, even why trader or parasite is necessarily wrong in and of itself, right? Like that's what we need to do. Like so for example, you brought up whims there. Like yeah. I know Ron talks about whims and she specifically says, What is it? A whim is a whim is a desire in which the desire I does not care to know the cause. I think that's the um the, the the quote from virtue of selfishness. And in that, I'm pretty sure she points towards life. There is this sort of ontological foundation from which makes a desire correct or incorrect. uh, And you need to understand what are your actual desires. And so an individual is simply not understanding themselves correctly when they uh, engage in a whim over a rational desire. But what I'm I'm wanting to know is she says it's life. Now, I just, I want to know what about life or a life of the individual or the ontological grounds of that individual are so that they Ought to feel guilt or ought to feel some sort of moral imperative towards others and why if it's only going to bottom out in pleasure like if it's not going to bottom out in some sort of flourishing like aristotle would say it's a completion of the individual right there is an ontological grounded teleological sort of uh foundation within the individual where you go that is the end of human life if you do this you will not reach that end so Is there anything like that in RAND, or is it going to bottom out in, you will feel bad? And if you don't feel bad, then what? Uh, Well,
1: I I think it does bottom out in, you will feel bad in the sense that you won't be happy, or at least as happy as you could be if if you didn't do these acts of parasitism.
0: Okay, so Uh, now, why will it not make me happy? Like, what about this parasitic relationship necessitates that an individual will, like, by their nature, be incapable of a higher level of happiness? I think
1: because on, on principle, that's, that's a self-destructive way of relating to other people, so when you're facing this question of how should I interact with other people uh, as traitor or as parasites, I think only the former is conducive to a long-run harmonious relation with others. The latter, you're putting yourself at war with others. And that can cause all kinds of problems.
0: Okay. So what you're saying is that this is, um, so essentially it's the only thing that is stopping me from, let's say, living a good life as a murderer is the possibility that others will not harmonize with my position.
1: i I don't know if that's the i wouldn't want to say that's the only but it's certainly a significant reason you are definitely putting yourself at disharmony with others if you live as a murderer and i don't think that's going to be conducive to your own personal happiness
0: what about the, the german cannibal you know that was like i want to eat someone and then someone's like yeah i want to be killed and eaten Am I never heard of this German cannibal who, yeah, who like wants a, to eat? He was like a This guy. He wanted to eat a guy, uh, and then someone came forward and was like, "Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll get eaten."
1: <clears throat> so someone volunteers to get eaten. I mean, if that's a very strange, I know it's strange. That's why I give you. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: I mean, if if two people consent sh- consent to something. Um, Should there be any limits to what they can consider? I'm not sure. Off the top of my head, I guess if we stipulate as this example that someone wants to eat others and someone else wants to be eaten, and that's the only way they can achieve happiness or pleasure, I guess, sure, Uh, they should do it. No, but I, I mean, it, I, I, don't I don't think see, that's going to be very relevant to a lot of people. But let's
0: say, like, you want to groom and manipulate a whole class of society and providing you with cheaper labor or valuing themselves less. Um, you know, they they've essentially been raised as such to believe that they are less rational, less capable, less um, human. Um, things like that. Like, why? Like, I guess the point of, of this is, is that this is all reliant upon this hypothetical situation that a disharmonious, disharmonious relationship is necessarily going to end up with a worse conclusion for the individual. Because if it does not, or even increase the likelihood of a, of a, a worse relationship, you could have a slightly mo- like, and, and as well, why is harmoniousness being assumed to be non-violent? Like, for example, Machiavelli makes a very strong case for why violence might increase social cohesion at certain points in time. So he could see like, look, actually society might not be at harmony with itself. And you could be bringing harmony into society by killing and mutilating and harming others to enforce your will, which might, and then force other people to harmonize with it. So why should I look at, uh, let's say me, why should I look as a moral agent as externally, I should harmonize with others rather than, force them to capitulate and harmonize with me like in a Hobbesian sense I am the sovereign do as you're told we are a group now
1: I mean if you really think if you honestly think that your happiness is better served by raping robbing and pillaging and murdering uh, I guess you should do that
0: Right. I just okay, don't think want, as an I empirical
1: matter, I, I, I think you would be mistaken.
0: Right. So you think that, it's, that you're, it's not that there is any sort of rational principle behind it. You just think that it's, you are probably mistaken. It, it's not, it's like that. It's probably going to end badly. Like I, 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 nine times out of 10 or something like that. And you're taking a risk. But you're not doing something. I think a, I think a lot than more
1: that. than nine times out of 10. <laughs> um,
0: I don't know. Unfortunately, I'm I mean, not sure.
1: You you can stipulate anything. Like, if we stipulate that banging your head against the rock is the way to the most blissful happiness you could possibly achieve, should you bang your head against the rock? Well, yeah, okay, sure. But I just disagree. I just don't think (laughs) that. uh,
0: I think that this relies upon some sort of. I think there are a lot of horrible people that exist in in the United States, in Great Britain, in Russia, that are of incredibly powerful positions that use and manipulate and harm others all the time. Um, why should I think that they are going to face some sort of retribution from the people? Like, I just all that, that their life is going to crumble uh, around them. I think that this is, I think this is the problem with Rand. I think even in this, I think that I have, the only reason I have to believe that people are going to even do anything to me is because of the social paradigm we're in. If I change the social paradigm so that people don't seek retribution for violent crimes or collectivize or collectively work together for that, then I, in theory, could be undermining the, 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 the harm done to myself from political consequence. All I just have to do is change the political system. I need to do what Machiavelli said and become, and become the, the, the prince so that I have this normative consequence where I perpetuate my will throughout the, throughout the body of the public, you know? This uh, this idea of like glory or or, or what does he say? I, I think where basically the the structure of society is formed by the by this by this individual. So like I don't know, man. I, it just seems to me that this is this isn't a case for doing right and wrong. Like the only reason that you care about others is as a means to an end. Anyway, that they are, they are valued through yourself. And so the only thing that's preventing moral cannibalism is that people don't really like cannibals.
1: well I, I mean speaking just for myself i i think it's it's in my own interest uh so it's i mean i i don't like moral cannibals, but I don't think it's my in my interest to to uh harm others in the way you're suggesting i mean so you talk about like
0: remember i'm not I want to point out I am not suggesting that you harm others. I'm actually a Hegelian aristotelian, so I just i' don't want to make it clear I, I would not do any of these things. I have no okay. intention of establishing myself as a tyrant, although I will be very mad at anyone who does not subscribe and so if i ever do rise to power, just keep that in mind um uh but yeah, otherwise that is <laughs> so yeah. I, I
1: guess maybe we just have different views on how plausible it is that you could be a a happy tyrant. So I I think if, if you manage to put yourself in this Machiavellian position, I guess you're describing it as where you, you get all the power for yourself. I think, I think uh, you're still, you're still at war, even if on the surface, you're not literally fighting. I think there's always this threat. There's always going to be people trying to take you out, rebel against you assassinate you um and so there's not there's not really a harmony there so i I think um it's it's just false that you would be in a state of peace and contentments if you've treated everybody else around you like garbage they're all out going to be gunning for you now um
0: not necessarily i think actually like you got stockholm syndrome people actually don't react like or a lot of them, at least. Maybe not every no, single no, one, but no. I think I think the majority of people, if you abuse them, will become more subordinate than than rebellious. They'll become more docile. That's I think that's an uh, unfortunate like psychological truth about people. People don't like like people just because you're abusive and violent against them. It does not mean that they will become uh, violent against you. And actually, in in many ways, they might cower. Um,
1: yeah, I can I can see how some people they would just submit. Yeah, they would kind of give up, think their position is hopeless, and um,
0: and and as well, like I guess the reason I'm kind of wanting to bring this is because the, the the fundamental thing is like you, you you said, like you know, if if it actually is going to bring this person well-being, you know, that's what they should do. There should be this rapist murderer, blah blah blah. So uh, you know, you're doing what brings you the greatest pleasure over time but how do you work out what is going to bring you the greatest pleasure over time anyway? Because that's, that's the real crux. That's what I was hoping you would allude to with a question of human nature, rather than simply harmon- like being harmonious about the pleasures that seemingly are given to you. I think, if I've understood Rand, I don't think Rand wants to say that anyway. I think Rand wants to say that there is something indicative about your nature that makes some things positive and some things negative, and from that, you can reason. Um. But I could be wrong because I don't know Rand that well. I, I, as I say, I've got a very specific um, understanding of Rand. I mean, and and as well, I, I think there is this issue of how do you reason your own ego when you are rationalizing from your own through, like it, you can't see the eyes you look through, right? Like when you reason about your own mind, it seems misguided to believe that you have access to your essential nature when your essential nature. As Lacan teaches us, is often only revealed in acts of speech or in actions which are observed from ex- external to the the individual acting. So I'm just wondering, like, why I have knowledge of my of what brings me pleasure, of what actually is good.
1: Okay. Well, just there in the last minute or so, it sounded like maybe you were relying on some sort of uh, I don't know if it's Hegelian view of how we know things, so we might have some very deep differences, we probably do, on metaphysics and epistemology um, that might be getting in the way here, but I, I can say from my point of view, or RAND's as I understand it, uh, how we come to know these sorts of things. So on RAND's view, we, we do have an inbuilt, biologically inbuilt pleasure pain mechanism, and we've just evolved in a certain way, such that certain things give us pleasure and certain things give us pain. And that's not open to our choice. It's it just, uh, uh, no, it's not, at least yeah. on, a, on a basic level. Like if you're a baby and uh, you're, you're drinking the milk, well, you have no choice but to experience pleasure at that. How does that account
0: for masochism then?
1: Well, hold on. Maybe we can build up to that. But um, if you you scrape your knee on a rock as a little child, you have no choice but to feel pain about that. So um, that, I think, provides a foundation. Maybe we should call it an objective foundation, where it's not just a matter of opinion that you feel these ways. It's just given to you as a fact of nature that you feel certain things as, as pleasurable and that that's what underlies our original concept of good and you feel certain things as painful and that underlies our original concept of bad now i think as as time goes on we can extrapolate and be more sophisticated about it for example you go to a dentist and that causes some pain to have your teeth drilled but you recognize that in the long run it's going to cause you even more pain if you don't have this taken care of maybe it'll cause tooth decay and um cause all kinds of problems. So you undergo some short-term pain in order to get a longer range pleasure or a more uh, fulfilling outcome. So um, you can't just go by the immediate sensation of pleasure and pain and, and have that tell you everything you need to know about what's good and bad to do. But I think it's at least a good place to start. And I think plausibly the only place to start when it comes to getting a concept of good and bad so now if I think you take a long-range view of your entire life, you'll come to see certain things as overall most pleasurable or most conducive to happiness and other things as not. And connecting it back up to what we've been talking about in these sorts of discussions, I think that if you really think through these sorts of cases that you've been talking about, about trying to become a murderer or a dictator over everybody, I think if you, if you consider all the consequences short short and long run, internal, psychologically, and existentially, how you're, the consequences of how other people are going to be dealing with you, I think you will conclude, or at least I conclude, that it's not in my best interest. And we, we've been struggling, to, I've been struggling, or we, we've been trying to um, uh, see eye to eye on that. And I don't think we we have yet, and so maybe we we won't. But that's at least the argument I would try to make, is that in the long run, It's not conducive to your pleasure and happiness um, to act in the sorts of ways which you've been describing.
0: But I mean, like, so for example, like you'd say that there was, I'm assuming that what you're arguing is that there is a material foundation from which is positive and negative, which is inherent to our experiences in the world. So like it simply is that you are a human being who feels pain and pleasure when you are engaged with certain stimuli. Now, I think that that is somewhat correct. I think they are natural categories that exist within Uh, our essential nature in the sense like obviously we all have the capacity for sensations uh, from certain sensations. Um, How we experience and value those sensations is psychologically, I would argue, structured and not inherent. So like, for example, like what is painful and what is pleasurable isn't necessarily the result of some form of uh, physical, a uh, purely physical uh, phenomena. I think it's a psychological phenomena from ha- uh, like, or, or psychologically imbued phenomena. Um, for example, this is where like Freud would talk about uh, sublimation um, where the infant, let's take like from a lacanian Freudian perspective, an infant of before six six months old, um, they would argue they lack uh, they haven't limited. They're spatially located and limited their experiences in the world, uh, and they are doing it phasally through time as they come to control and understand aspects of their body. So like, for example, like they'll go through like the oral phase, they'll go through like the anal phase, the phallic phase and so on uh, in relation to various pains and pleasures. And even then, when they engage with these stimulations, how they experience those Uh, is determined by how they relate to themselves, which is why you get masochism. For example, like the anal stage is heavily associated with masochism, right? Because you can gain pleasure from your own frustration. Um, So what Freud is presenting is a human psychology in which the positive and negative stimuli themselves don't offer the bedrock of good and bad but offer the modes of offer the the grounding of interpretation of what you will consider good and bad because you your judgment of good and bad is going to sublimate your desires and give them a form of meaning right it's going to bring that meaning through in which you will experience which is why a masochist even though many of us would be like what are you doing that looks awful they'll be like i'm having a blast right and they will be feeling pleasure so how would you account for that like how would you account for someone who seems to have all of the same physical stimulus same reactions yet says i am having a good time rather than a bad time
1: yeah so um i think there are well I just want to make this point so i think there's there's a the psychological analog to pleasure and pain. So if we call pleasure and pain physical, then in the emotional realm, you might think of joy and suffering as the analogs to pleasure and pain. So when you get a raise at a job, let's say that can be a pleasurable experience, but it's not pleasurable in the way that, you know, eating ice cream might be. It's not that physical sort of pleasure where it's just stimulating the senses, but you have this, it's a more mental kind of pleasure. You get this rush of mental pleasure from uh the news that you got to raise at the job so in the in the masochist sort of example it seems like you're
0: is it not the same there's... why do you think it's not the same so what's the difference necessarily like i mean obviously there is the location of where the pleasure is like you might have the same sort of stimulation but in uh, you know in many ways like you, even in even in neurobiological terms you release a lot of the same chemicals um so like for example an individual who you know eats like sugar and stuff might have a dopamine release um an individual who gets a raise might have a dopamine release um then there's obviously things like oxytocin serotonin these can be released through non-physical like purely mental stimulation uh where you know the so i'm just wondering like, why you would even separate them out like it, they obviously there is the, the cause this the, this, the yeah. cause but there's the and even the pleasure might be different in kind but is every pleasure not different in kind like is, is every experience of pleasure not distinct
1: I, I think there might be something in common to, uh, so when you, when you eat ice cream and when you get the news that you, you got a raise, I think both of those could have an emotional component, but I think maybe in the latter case, the case of the raise there's, it's only the, the emotional component. There's not also this other physical components of pleasure there's an addition in emotion. Now, there, there might be you know, um, uh, something going on in the brain. as dopamine release in either case. Uh, like you, you might feel emotional pleasure as a result of the physical pleasure of eating the ice cream, but I, I'm doubting those are the same kinds of pleasure. I think you seems, could distinguish it.
0: Even if you were to distinguish them, it seems that they seem to be incredibly related anyway. So, for example, like the whole point of like lib, like the libido I think that, like, Freud and McConnell are putting forward, like, the individual can have um, a libidinal response or not have a libidinal response, which will dictate how they are going to experience any physical stimulation anyway. Like, for example, if I was to um, uh, be raped uh, versus have loving consensual sex... I'm going to have a vastly different experience based purely off psychological phenomena. Even if every single physical act was the same, my physical arousal, my ability to exp- enjoy that physical sensation has being taken from me. Do you, do you see what I mean? So I think that the, the connection between an individual psyche, like the structure of an individual psyche and even the physical stimulus, like how do we, how do we tear these apart? Do you know what I mean? Where you go, oh, no, no, you should be feeling, uh, you know, like, it's not like, I know you are being raped, but in reality, like, you know, you should have felt arousal, like, that would be ridiculous, right?
1: Well, I, I'm not sure that the, I, I, I doubt the the physical state would be the same, like, if you're being raped, say you're, a, if you're a woman, and you're being raped, uh, maybe you won't lubricate as much. Um, and, you know, you'll, you'll experience tearing in that region whereas if you were turned on if then you know you oh, would I, I mean you could
0: you could you could posit like a woman is like lubricated to hell like the rapist is lubricated a woman to hell i still think that you might end up having a uh, like th- th- there will be an intense suffering like, like like the 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 act itself will be interpreted like the ple- like what would be like considered pleasure will be interpreted i'm arguing in a way that is not pleasure like the same stimulus. It feels like, as in even the stimulus itself feels like a, um, a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a breach of her boundaries, like a breach of, a, of, of what she actually desires. And so this isn't an, a satisfying, like, because I think that satisfaction is derived from desire. It is, it is the desire, like the satisfaction, like the satisfaction only makes sense in relation to, um, I am lacking something. And so I want it. And then my satisfaction is obtaining it. It's not like, like there is this sort of just random. It, it, I think this lacks an understanding of why stimulus would even be considered positive and negative. Like why do we even enjoy food, water, you know, like warmth? It's not simply that this stimulation happens and therefore it's good. Like I am experiencing some sort of Ontological goodness—it's that my brain interprets these chemicals, and I interpret these chemicals in a certain way in the first place. Do you see what I'm saying?
1: Uh, my my mind is going to another point. I want to make. I'm sort I'm sort of getting what you're. Let me just make one other point, and then we can come back to this if I don't address it. Um, but I think the stimul- the physical stimulus, is not the same in the case of rape. I, I think maybe it's more obvious in the male case. So. If, if you're a male, you know, you, you can get an erection, uh, blood is flowing to a certain region in a certain way, when you're actually turned on. But if you're if you're being raped, maybe you're not having an erection at all, maybe there's not extra blood flowing to that region, maybe the blood is flowing to your fight or flight muscles so you can, you know, fight off the person who's trying to rape you. So I, I think your internal physiology could be radically different in the two cases. So I, I don't I think, think we it, can just assume I that the, even the physical could, stimulus is the same.
0: Even, like, look, if you, even, what my point is, is that I think even if you did equalize all of those physical stimulus, like if you were to give someone Viagra, or you were to give them some sort of, you were to perform some sort of physical action on them that would, would, rela- would force their body into a, into a state of, a, of apparent arousal. I think that the individual psychology one, the fact that they're not really meeting arousal itself shows that there is that the mind is having a reciprocal effect on the body in the first place um, and that the body isn't necessarily that pleasure is not being derived from the body and that the, the mind and the body are actually like that. But, the, but regardless, even if the individual was forced into a state in which they are having the stimulation, the stimulation itself is being interpreted like it's, it's yeah. information which is being interpreted. Do you see what I mean? So like, why, is, why do we interpret it one way than another? I think that's, ex, uh, that, that's explained through psychology, not necessarily an evolutionary approach or at least purely evolutionary approach. You could say obviously the capacity and the, 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 the organs and stuff, fair enough. Yeah, evolutionary. But like the actual experience and what it means to have the experience, I don't think so. I don't think that it's, it's I, I can't tell someone what it's like to have ice cream by telling them, The neurochemical response I've had, or the the or the or rather telling them the chemical induction, the the introduction of chemicals into my body, and how it stimulates certain nerves, and then how that nerve stimulation will even affect the brain, I think is going to be based off things like anticipation, um, of uh, of more than what what's just available in the physical stimulus stimulus. Do you, do you know what I'm saying?
1: I, I I certainly do think, I think we agree that there are two levels here. So there's, there's the purely physical level and um, there's also a psychological or emotional kind of level, we might call it.
0: I don't think I, that's, I, I think that's the disagreement, actually. I think you want to say there's two levels. I think there's one level and I think they're the same in the sense. Like, well, I, I think, think they have an
1: influence them. on each other, but I don't think they're the
0: same. Well, I mean, it depends on what, like, I think that what we are experienced, like, it's at the point of experience in which they are synthesized, right? Like, that is the synthesis, the experience of the individual. But the, the, the stimulus themselves, or an individual's psychology without the stimulus, seems to be one sided, right? Like, if I had no pain and pleasure receptors, of course, like, it's I am, I'm, I'm, I am, I'm, I might not have any positive or negative stimuli, right? But like, I might have sensitivities. But just because I have sensitivities, it doesn't mean I can derive what is pleasurable and painful. And so the, the, it, it it causes me to 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 posit the question really to, the, to to you as a Randian, like why am like what why should I? How do I understand what is good and bad for me? Do you see what I mean? If I can't just get it from a, a biological account.
1: Well, I I think it takes. Um... It takes introspection. So I think first you have to pay attention to what causes you pleasure and pain. And then later as you mature, you, there's this other level, I'm calling it this emotional level. You, you need to pay attention to what brings you joy and suffering, whereby these, I mean, the more mental sort of thing as opposed to the purely physical response to something touches you in some way or, um, And I think if you are, if you introspect and think really seriously about, well, what causes me to experience positive emotions like joy, what causes me to experience negative emotions like suffering? I think that is uh, what you need to do in order to figure out what's good and bad for you. I mean, that can take a lot of work. It's not easy. You can make mistakes along the way. But I think that's the sort of thing you need to be doing to figure it out.
0: So what would be the kind of mistakes that you can make? So you can obviously make the mistake of um, delayed gratification versus immediate gratification. I think that's the most obvious. Where it's like, okay, like this isn't indicative of pleasure over time. But is this mistake purely a, hed- a hedonic calculus? Is what I'm asking. Are you simply mistaken at what will bring you the most pleasure? Is that fundamentally it? Ah, <clears throat> uh, is that?
1: Maybe I'm not sure let, let me give a see if I can give an example. Um, so I think you can be mistaken about the the causes of your pleasure. so let's say you're um, you're you're dating somebody and you're thinking, you know maybe you experience a positive emotion in response to this person, but you can be mistaken about its cause. Like maybe initially you think, "Oh, I really like this person because they embody some traits like uh like honesty, which I really value um, but maybe maybe that's that's a snap judgment. Maybe the real reason you like them is, uh, I don't know, they they're from your hometown or something, and you have some. It's kind of partiality towards people who are from a similar I don't know if that's a very good example, but, but the point is just, I think you can be mistaken in identifying what reasons cause your emotions. And th- that's a way you could go wrong or be mistaken.
0: How would you respond to the experience machine then? Let's say you could get yourself, let's say you had enough money to get yourself like locked up in an experience machine and just fed dopamine for the rest of your life until you die <laughs> You're in a state of bliss, like. Is that good or bad?
1: Yeah. So, so uh, for anyone who doesn't know, this is Robert Nozick's thought experiment. Yeah, and experiment. he thinks
0: his his response is specifically to say that he thinks people value being in reality. Now, I think that what you're seeing is people value pleasure. Now, it's nothing to do with anything with that. And that reality is a means to an end in some respects of obtaining the pleasure. So I'm just wondering how you would kind of... Yeah.
1: So I, I've, I've actually debated this with some other people who are objectivists and actually um, we've disagreed about this. And I think some, some of the people I've discussed with have thought I'm not an objectivist maybe because of, or at least not in, in respect to this sort of issue. So with the experience machine, I, I don't, I'm not aware of a good reason not to go in it. If we are stipulating that you can have a more pleasurable experience by going overall in the long run if by going into the machine now i i doubt as a matter of fact we could actually construct such a machine but you know setting that aside if we're just going with the sci-fi sort of example and we're just stipulating you could have a happier more pleasurable sort of experience in the long run why not prefer that over the reality you actually live in uh, it's not clear to me that you shouldn't go in the experience machine so uh, uh, it's we just bite the bullet on that yeah get in the machine yeah. <laughs> okay yeah. fair enough
0: that's fair enough i guess i guess like i guess in terms of this i, I guess my main concern is metaphysical i think that i don't trust simply introspection uh, i think that people analyze themselves when you analyze yourself you often alienate yourself from your own knowledge i think that knowledge itself one i think language is functionally um into, into, into subjective um it, it, the way that it so the way that it functions is necessarily to rely upon individuals recognizing certain uh, significations to uh an, a common domain right and that certain um concepts or specific mental abilities um are being used correctly or incorrectly in relation to a shared goal, right? That's what I would say. So like, you know, we're trying to build like in the kind of Wittgensteinian sense, if there's two people and they're trying to build something, one points at a brick and he's like slab and they're the other ones like, you know, watching him do this, he's able to sort of rationally put together that, you know, he wants the slab uh, and it sort of builds up and, you know, it, it builds up into a more complex um, functional relationship But that ultimately my understanding of this being a slab comes from not just my indication of that thing, but of your recognition of my indication and the possibility of correcting my interpretive use of words. So I might say uh, a sentence and you might go, well, no, Lewis, you've used that word incorrectly or that I might have thought I've expressed. I might have an understanding of a word that is irrational and, and it doesn't make sense. And uh, that this is why he says, like, it's like the beetle in the box sort of thing. The, there is a, over his argument against private languages specifically, that there is a, that the separation has to be from the interpretation and the rule. And that language is a rule-based structure, right? Where there are rules to how we use certain concepts. And those concepts allow us to essentially experience certain aspects of the world right? Without the world I live in is linguistic in origin. It's phenomenal. It contains, like, I don't just live in a world full of, like, rocks and, like, uh, pieces of wood and, like, sensory experiences. I live in a world which is conceptual, right? And I think that when we talk about the I, like, having a a conscious experience through time, the unity of my identity and how I understand myself, what I'm positing as good and bad, I think that is linguistic. And I think that the The issue here is that you aren't going to find that your identity, through introspection alone, you are going to have to rely upon intersociality. I'm going to have to have you tell me what is good for me in some cases, and I will tell you what's good for you. Right. Self-association.
1: Yeah, I I think we might have a deep disagreement here. Um, I, I don't think language is essentially social. And I, I don't even know if I've read, I've, I've, I've certainly heard of, I don't, I might've read about, uh, Wittgenstein's private language argument, but I'm definitely not familiar with it, but based on my own way of thinking about it, which I think is consistent with RANDS, I, I don't think of language as social in the sort of way that you're making it out to be. I think uh, we certainly learn words from other people, but I don't think in principle there's, there's a reason why one couldn't have a private language. And I think something like pleasure and pain is experienced as good and bad independently of what others say about it or what others, how others label it. I think that's just given as a fact How would you of our to nature,
0: psychological states, like even like what you take to be our nature, seems to be, from what psychology has taught us, seems to be sociopolitically constructed. Like, as in my ability to experience positive and negative, like even the differences in, let's say, taste, like palates. It's not that Japanese people have different tongues, right? It's that they've been raised in an environment which has a different menu, right? Like it, 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 it. It's the. It, it seems to sort of discount the. Individual's participation, in what is and is not pleasurable, and it even seems to discount of what pleasure is metaphysically. Like, how do I describe what pleasure is, without uh, satisfaction, without the achievement of some sort of, act of willing of desire? It's like pleasure's not like. Uh, I think this this turns pleasure into a. Into it, divorces it from a telos, and that's what's concerning. And I think that a telos can be natural. You could have a natural one. You could say, like, "All right, well, no, your body desires these chemicals." Yeah, to some degree. But then there is also a a mental component to how these are interpreted. Like, do I interpret? Let's say, like someone might take a drug and feel anxious uh, and another excited simply because of the how they interpret the heart rate um so i think that they they, in terms of self of in terms of introspection i guess the 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 main problems are for me is one this seems to totally discount how people actually experience uh in the first place and it seems to remove um sort of essential components i would say like as in like essence from the scenario where language is actually being used to posit an, objects, uh, an object as a thing to the consciousness. Uh, and instead, it's you're relying upon consciousness sort of presenting itself perfectly to itself, right? As if I'm getting some sort of un- infallible, like infallible knowledge through introspection. Um, and then two, it, it seems to uh, rely upon a method from which I... I'm incapable of validating or falsifying my own introspective methods. Like, how do I know whether I've analyzed myself correctly or incorrectly? Do you know what I mean? Like, where's the standard from which I can judge my introspection against? Like, am I thinking about myself right? Yeah. Uh, Maybe... Maybe
1: uh, something like Mills' methods would be a tool one could use to to figure out if you're if you're reaching the correct conclusion. Like to go back to the example of why you like this person you f- you feel something positive when you're around this person, but you're not sure exactly why. So maybe at first your thought is, "Oh, I, I like the person because uh, she embodies the trait of honesty," but then you you encounter this other person and. You you have some evidence that they're honest too, but you don't have the same kind of positive response to them, let's say. And now using Milton's method of of difference, maybe it is, you say, okay, well, maybe it isn't really honesty. Um, since that same trait is in this other person, yet I have a different response. Maybe it's something else. Okay, let me let me think about that some more. I still not and gonna
0: overcome the issue of interpretation, right? Because the interpretation is still going to be. Like, it's it's your understanding of the difference. It's your understanding of the similarity. It's your judgment that is being individuated and, and essentially being uncorroborated. Like, what judges the judgment? Like, what standardizes your judgment? How do we know whether you're judging correctly or incorrectly? Do you see what I mean?
1: Uh, I, I don't really see the problem. I mean, if, if you see the sorts of if you observe the sorts of inconsistency which i just noted like you you feel one way towards this honest person and another a different way towards another honest person so is that not sufficient to at least give you some evidence that maybe it's something other than honesty that i'm responding positively toward
0: it's whether like so for example your interpretation could be that in both cases that you are responding identically in both cases and and that or that you are responding in a totally different way so you you could be in real life in reality you respond positively to one and negative to another or positively to one because of a you you think that or you might think that both are honest or you might um or you might convince yourself that you are that you are you, you you aren't being biased there there is like there is a separate alternative reason like, I'm like, how do we measure whether your interpretive exercise is correct or incorrect? Are you interpreting correctly or incorrectly?
1: Uh, I, I mean, I don't see why you couldn't just continue this sort of Mills methods of agreement and disagreement and concomitant variation. It's Does another it one
0: necessarily mm-hmm. unscientific. Like, so for example, this is like, it's like saying like, uh, I, I it, it, this is why like in, psych, in psychology, they still have to do like blind uh, placebo control. Like, even, even in normal science, right? Like, we don't just ask people, like, how do you feel? Like, we we'll have to go, like, you know, like, we need some sort of objective metric. We need something to work out whether, like, the individual's interpreting themselves correctly or incorrectly. Do you see what I'm saying? You can't rely upon simply, like, oh, what do you think about yourself? Most, most of it, I would say the majority of people misunderstand themselves. The, I would say actually everyone, everyone in some respects does not understand themselves correctly. And I think that it, if you were to rely upon introspection alone, I can see those problems even becoming exacerbated through an individual's perverse psychology. So, if you have someone who, let's say, they're a narcissist, and they're like, "No, I'm I'm judging correctly," and they're like, "Look, I I've thought about it, and uh, no, I'm actually I'm I'm even more certain I'm correct." <laughs> Do you know what I mean?
1: Okay, I think. I'm not sure, um, but I, I think we, we might have different views of the reliability of introspection and maybe even what introspection is. So I, I know it's it's common among psychologists to discount introspection or downplay it or say it's very unreliable. Uh, and uh, we need some other method to figure out what's true. From what I've read about their views, I, I think I disagree. I think uh, introspection, properly understood at least, is a good and essential tool to figuring out what's true. I mean, it's our own minds, our own minds. How, do, how else? What better way is there to figure out what you think about something than to reflect on it? Uh, yourself i mean you, you have access to that which nobody else does so if you if you throw out introspection i think that's a huge mistake i'm not I don't think anyone's saying, saying, saying you're throwing it, it out, out i don't but even say throw it out I, I but think i, I think that
0: even even saying that that alone so like you said that you do you have access to something that every, like other people don't fair enough I, I will i will admit that what happened do you not think that the reverse is true you they have access to you from which you do not have access to yourself an objective third party position of of analysis
1: yeah they certainly they can see you from a point of view which you don't see yourself from that's sure
0: it's yeah true. so like in in terms of like how you understand what is good and bad for yourself do you think that introspe- introspection alone can be trusted when you don't have access to the full uh, the full picture
1: i I don't know if I would want to say introspection alone, but so it might help you. I think it could be helpful to consult third parties. Maybe people are more experienced. They've lived longer. I mean, if you're a child, that's part of what it's like to be a child. You know, your, your parents has had so much life, so much more life experience that they could help you out a lot in figuring out what is good for you. Um, but, uh, I don't think it's in principle impossible for the child to figure it out. It's just a tremendous aid. So it's not like there's some metaphysical bar.
0: I think it's, I think it's in principle impossible without the mutual aid of others to even epistemologically access your own well-being. I would say that. And that's, and that's not even including the fact that I think that metaphysically, I would argue that metaphysically, your understanding of self, as in like what makes you a human when I use these words, language, language itself is made of universal components. When I say the word human, it relates to not just a single individual instance of a being, but it relates to beings through time and space. Um, it's the same thing with chair, you know, wall. All of these are universals. Language is complete. And I think in these universals. And not only do I think in these universals, but to understand myself as an I, when I say I, I limit my, myself to a universal. It's not, it's not that I am particularized. I don't go like, I don't say I, and it means uh, like, I don't go, I, he, we, she, you know, I don't go through variations of pronouns or so every time I say, I, the same person has, you know, another person has been born every 24 seconds when the neuron, like when my, uh, you know, like the energy in my brain changes, like or discharges, there is a psychological continuation. And that psychological continuation is instantiated in my identity, uh, at least partly, or at least my knowledge of that psychological continuation is instantiated in identity. So I think that it's, it's, it's one of those things where metaphysically, I would say that you are a universality, right? Like what makes you an individual? What I mean, what individuality even is what is individuality Kant not defines it. It's like, what it means to be an individual is a limited universal. You want a particular because you transpire through time. Particulars don't, they perish. You want a, a universal because you're not um, all encompassing. You're not everything in, in existence. You are limited universality. You are something which is uh, essentially a persistent form. And so to uncover your pers- the, the persistence of your form is to analyze a universality, and understand the limitations that are being self-implied or the limitations implied naturally to you, which might be spatial temporal, you know, like I live in my house and I exist in this life, but they might also be psychological. And, the, and, and these are the are, are core components of what makes me, me, you know, my, in, my universality and my particularity. And what I worry about this uh, approach is that it seems to really heavily rely upon particularity, upon your particular experiences from moment to moment rather than the universality of what it means to be um a subject an individual experiencing positive and negative and why you are driven towards um achieving pleasures and pain and avoiding pains and so on it just sort of takes everything as a given
1: Hmm. i i'm not sure i followed all that it seemed like you might be bringing in a fair amount of uh Kantian or Hegelian yeah, premises no <laughs> there which are <laughs> quite alien to to my way of of thinking about this I think you have you have a very deeply social view of individuals I guess which I don't share I mean so,
0: even, even not even just social I would even say that the individual is a manifestation of a universal substance so, I'd say that what makes you what makes you you is universal in origin, just as much as it's particular. Like I think that the Rand wants to say that there is this sort of fundamental material cause for the individual um, and sort of implicitly points towards a empiricist metaphysic, uh, which I would outright which I would categorically deny. I would say that is incorrect. And I think
1: that's the main I'm issue. not sure what you what you mean like how
0: how do we understand the self the self in rand is i from what i understand is a, a derivative of, of a material nature you are simply a material being and how we understand the self is by analyzing this material entity. well, which well let's human.
1: let's maybe let's just focus on part of this uh you are a material being so that doesn't to me sound like something i mean what, what in Rand? if you can recall, makes you think that her view is that we are, I mean, she certainly thinks we have a material aspect, our bodies, but she doesn't think that we are, or at least plausibly, I think, one can interpret her as saying we also have a a, uh, non-material aspect, our minds or our consciousness.
0: But yeah, but I mean, fair enough. I I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily know, as I say, I guess it's more about how she talks about it. The foundation is life, Um, which would be fair enough, but it seems that she approaches life and the, you know, a point of introspection and the point of analysis. Wait,
1: wait, The foundation of what is life?
0: Foundation of, um, I think she says the foundation of um, what she derives as the moral cause or the cause of morality or the cause of uh, desires as life. And that this is the fundamental um, ontology from which we derive our understanding of what is good and bad in relation to ourselves. It is the fact that we are living organisms trying to achieve pleasure and pain, right? Like, it is, it, it, that's where she begins.
1: Well, she does think that the phenomenon of values depends on the phenomenon of life. That's correct. So yeah. she thinks so on only.
0: I'm just on wondering is this material? Like, is this. Like, for example, like what, like, so when I said about um, how I understand my pains and pleasures, you said they do it through introspection. One mode was material analysis. Another mode was psychological, um, psychological analysis, right?
1: Well, there's just different sorts of pleasure. So there's what you might call physical pleasure, the ice cream, eating ice cream, but there's also emotional pleasure, the pleasure of getting a raise at a job. So in terms
0: of Epistemological, the epistemological method that is used. Am I gaining this information through constant conjunction? Is what I'm asking. Is it that like it seems that it happens again and again that every time I eat ice cream, I I, I have a good time, and is that how I gain information? Is it like inductive? And do is uh, that how I, you gain, like, what is what is Ron's epistemology specifically?
1: It's uh well, very broadly, uh, she thinks one should follow reason as opposed to faith. So one should have evidence, but evidence for one's views um, can come in different forms. So we have the evidence of our senses, uh, but we also have the evidence of introspection. Both of those are important and need to be used as, as a basis. I think induction also is a very important way that she reaches uh knowledge principles actually deduction presupposes induction so um, if you're going to use mean, a a broad principle to deduce to apply it into a particular case like all all human beings all men are mortal socrates is a man therefore socrates is mortal So there you're doing a deduction. You're taking this broad principle, all men are mortal, applying it to a particular case. But where did you get the principle all men are mortal to begin with? Well, it can only be through induction. You had to observe. Induction. Through. um, Well, this is at least the claim. So um, where else are you going to get your knowledge? except she's an empiricist so she thinks all knowledge is based yeah, thought, on the I evidence of the senses
0: empiricist. that's that's the thing so I, I think she's an empiricist and i'm about to, in that sense at least kill empiricism again um so, so they, where else I, are you
1: going to get general principles from except from the so concrete individual approach. experiences you have
0: i would argue for a hermeneutic approach i think that you actually need to interpret those experiences And anyways i think that the, the fact that you think that you can gain you can abstract knowledge from reality is absolutely mistaken I think Hume showed this in many ways, right? That we end up with this, if you affirm an analytic synthetic divide, if you affirm empiricism, you end up with an analytic synthetic divide where I don't know if my, my a priori concepts actually pertain to reality. There has to be a priori components within reality for my concepts to actually uh, uh, obtain two. So this is why, like, for example, Hume says um, there are two billiard balls on a table. Uh, one strikes the other. Where is the third term betwixt them? Why where's the causation? why when I see one event lead to another, why do I affirm causation through constant conjunction, and how do I justify constant conjunction because I think it might help me. There is nothing that in any way justifies induction unless you rely upon deduction unless you can say that you can deductively argue i would i mean I wouldn't be induction anymore anyway it would be like abduction, but like the you you, you unless you can justify um a deductive notion of science or, or a deductive notion of scientific, a, a scientific analysis, I think you're going to end up really firmly in a point in which you cannot have knowledge of the external world. And I think really, I think Hume does that. He just tears it apart. Um, it doesn't matter. Uh, someone in the chat saying Rand isn't a human. It doesn't matter if Rand's a human. It, what matters is whether she's an empiricist and whether she can overcome the problem of induction. So
1: so, I, Rand has some very different fundamental premises than than Hume, and I think that uh, maybe challenging those the, the premises Hume holds is is a route to um, making induction seem more reliable. So, if you start from Hume's premises, then maybe you will end up where Hume is on on the issue of induction. But if you reject those premises, maybe not. So. Um that's, that's a very general kind of way of gesturing at um, what's going on here. So what are Hume's fundamental premises which lead him to conclude? Like, is it true that you need to be able to see – what is the nature of causality? That, that's one issue. So if you can construe causation as um, one event following f- another event – Well, is that what causation is? Uh, Rand has a more Aristotelian way of looking at causation, which is that uh, things act in accordance with their natures. So a a, uh, a ball, a, a basketball has a certain nature such that if you drop it, it bounces back up. But an egg has a different nature such that if you drop it, it just splats on the floor. Now everything in the world has a certain nature and it acts in accordance with that nature. And
0: I mean, understanding understanding
1: causality is understanding uh, the different natures, the different properties of things that cause them to act in the way that they do. But I think Hume has a, a very different sort of way, maybe a different metaphysics where he, is it just a like there's just a there aren't really entities so that's that's a pretty fundamental thing there's just bundles of sensation well, nothing nominalist. holding he's a nominalism. yeah a that's guy. i think that's another fundamental i think empiricism parting of empiricism, the ways
0: empiricism can only be nominalism or conceptualism it can't it, like you can't have a form of empiricism which presupposes an a priori aspect in reality and it be empiricist because like unless you were to Because, like, for example, at this this point, I think it becomes something closer to uh, Hegel, which is objective idealist, or Aristotle, I would even say. There is no, like, uh, where there is a a species or an an essential nature, which is um, not, which is, uh, there is a category, a concept in reality, right? Like, as in, like, every zebra contains the form of a zebra, the essence of a zebra, the substance. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, if you particularize that to individual members, then, then it's either that... So, like, for example, Aristotle would say every zebra contains the universality of zebraness and that the universal is more causative. It is. It contains what it means to be a zebra more than any individual member of the species. It is the species, right? Now, Rand can't be saying that. Otherwise, I could make an argument about human nature or about the nature of being a moral subject, that would mean that you should act in accordance with that, that which is universal and not that which is particularized. She's going to say, do what's individually good, not do what's good for the collective, right? So it can't be a universal nature like Aristotle.
1: It has to be a particularized <clears throat> one.
0: Now that is going to be more akin to the nominalists and the conceptualists. So I'm just wondering... How I mean I've I've got to go really because uh, I've I've got to catch the shop and uh, it's only been two hours but like as a final thing what 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 do you think would be Rand's response to that so I know it's a very very uh, it's a very difficult question to ask and especially one just before we we'll go
1: well I maybe I can give an easy answer by saying she's written a whole book on a uh, a new theory of concepts it's called Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology where she puts forward a theory of concepts, which is neither nominalist, nor conceptualist, nor, nor realist in the platonic realist or Aristotelian real, uh, or, yeah, realist sense. So it's, it's an objective, we might call it the objectivist theory of concepts. And I think it's one of her greatest contributions to philosophy, but not nearly as well known as other
0: I've never read that, so I can't, I can't comment on it. So I will yeah. give that a read. I'll go, and, I'll go and have a look at it. Uh, I'll go give that a read. Um, so what was that again? It was the... Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I'm sorry to have to shoot off or anything. Yeah. Um, it's, been, it's been really fun. I'm happy to talk again in the future if you're interested. Obviously, we can kind of... Because we've gotten, like I think, about halfway through, I think, what might... And I'll go and have a look at that book. Maybe we can discuss after... I've had a look on uh, uh, Randy I might come back and I'll be like, I'm a Randian, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, Sounds great. Yeah, if thanks, you're interested. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, but, oh, yeah uh, definitely. Yeah, th- thank you for coming on. And if anyone's interested in seeing more of Dan, check out the uh, description. His channel's linked. Um, you've been uh, nothing but uh, a good um, participant. And I really appreciate your insights into Rand's philosophy. So thank you very much, Dan, and have a lovely day.
1: All right. You too. Thanks for, thanks again for having me on.